On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I get to talk with Gavin Ortland about the really growing topic of theological retrieval. So what is theological retrieval? Is it something that's good? What are potential drawbacks? How should we go about doing it if that's something that we should do? Um, Does this ruin or or take away evangelical identity in, in some form or fashion, as some might think it does? And if it is something we should do, how do pastors do it? How do regular, normal people do this? So what does this look like in, in our real life, daily practical living? So ton of fun talking with him. He's very knowledgeable. He's got a lot of great stuff coming out. He's putting a lot of really cool things out. So I encourage you to listen to the whole thing and, and let us know what you think. I'd like to welcome all of our guests to all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. And I guess our guest today, Dr. Gavin Ortland. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And as I mentioned, we have Dr. Gavin Ortland with us to talk about theological retrieval, particularly for evangelicals. Uh, I think this is a very uh, exciting developing realm among evangelicals, uh, especially Protestants, at least in my circles, seem to be gravitating towards uh, this type of theological work. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, him explain these things and why it is useful, what uh, the benefits are, what potential perils are. So before we get into it, though, I, I want to give him a chance to introduce himself to our listeners. I'm not sure if everybody's familiar with him. I know some of uh, you will be, but others will not. So, uh, Dr. Ortland, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Um, if there's anything you think is really important about yourself or just you want to share uh, to give a little context, uh, I'll let you do that. Sure. Yeah. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm a pastor. We live in Ojai, California. Ojai is about 80 miles northwest of Los Angeles, uh, kind of near the Ventura Oxnard area. And I serve as the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai here. Um and I'm married, and we have three kids and a fourth due in a couple of weeks. Oh. So we are uh, kind of in one of those busy seasons of parenthood with lots of high-energy pillow fights in the evenings and all that kind of stuff. Um, this book that you mentioned is called Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, and that's an area that I tend to write a lot in. I'm, I'm just really interested in that, and I've just found a great deal of benefit in that. So I'm really excited to uh, talk about it today. So a bunch of young kids and you're pumping out multiple books at the same time. <laughs> That's incredible. They make for a great break from studying when I need to, uh, you know, get some energy out. So it works out pretty good. That's awesome. So will you maybe just start with a definition here? Will you define theological retrieval for those listeners who are not familiar with that phrase? Sure. And, and this is not a technical term. This, um, uh, sometimes people think of it as an overly formal process, but it's really just a loose term that just refers to drawing from the theology of church history for help in doing theology today. It's really that simple. Um, so in terms of the different disciplines, we might think of it as using historical theology to the end of constructive systematic theology. Um, which in some ways is really what systematic theology always does to some extent, because Hmm. all good theologians listen to the the voices of the past. Um, But it's maybe doing that with a little bit more intentionality. And I do think it's it's sort of a rising movement of sorts, which there's always the danger that if something gets trendy, as 
retrieval can in certain circles and does i think uh it can there can be a temptation just to jump in and do something because it's trendy but there's also the temptation that people might have to reject something because it's trendy or to be suspicious of something that is trendy and so um i think it's important just to ask you know why is this important and what are the benefits of it and i think they're especially in our cultural moment right now um, both outside of the church, just in Western culture, and then in the church as well, especially evangelical churches. I think there's particular reasons why there's value in considering the great voices of the past as we do theology and then just be the church today. So you mentioned there's benefits. Why don't you walk us through some of those? Okay, sure. Um, well, maybe the first thing I could point out is just been a personal entry point for me on this topic, one of the ways that it began to be important to me that might help listeners kind of feel a little bit of why this topic is important, why we need these benefits. Um, and that is, I've had a lot of friends in recent years who've converted from an evangelical context to a Roman Catholic context or Eastern Orthodox, um, or in some cases, a movement within Protestantism but from evangelical to a more high church liturgical type setting, which obviously is a different thing than going Catholic or Orthodox. But I've really listened carefully um, and tried to understand what are the reasons why people make that journey, because a lot of people are. And um, I have a sense that at least part of the reason for many people, obviously each person's journey is different, but I think part of the reason for many people is a legitimate concern about a kind of shallowness and kind of a me and my Bible approach that is often taken in evangelical contexts where we really don't mm -hmm. have much historical depth. And so that's kind of the heart a little bit behind the book, kind of where I'm coming from, some of the concerns that are growing in me, as well as just the sense that in our culture right now, a lot of people are looking for a sense of transcendence and a sense of depth. And I think there are there are other reasons why theological retrieval can be especially useful just in relation to what it is like living in the late modern West. And, you know, part of the ethos of our culture is a sense of emancipation from the past and, and from the restrictions of the past. That's kind of part of the heart of the Enlightenment. You know, there, there were the Dark Ages and now we're enlightened. And I think a little bit of that ethos is still with us in the modern West. And so I think that's that's another sort of underlying factor, perhaps, in why this topic matters. So I would say, in terms of the benefits, maybe a, a starting point could just be to share my own experience. And that could help people sympathize with where I'm coming from. I grew up in evangelical churches. I didn't know a lot about church history. I never had a particular interest in it certainly knew a lot less about like the early church or the medieval church, but some time along the way of my education, I think it was even a little before seminary, um, I began, I, I encountered Anselm, who was a medieval theologian, and I was just really intrigued by what he was writing and the way he was functioning. And uh, there's a scene in the movie, Mr. Holland's Opus, where he's describing how he fell in love with music and he says he was listening to a John Coltrane tape back in that day, back in like the 90s. And uh, he said at first he couldn't stand it. And then he, he 
so he listened to it again and then he still couldn't stand it and he listened to it again and eventually he couldn't stop listening to it and then eventually he said i i knew what i wanted to do with my life and it's it, i had a similar experience with medieval theology of it, there's this something intriguing and different about it as an american evangelical that was a bit outside of my framework but it just drew me in and i found i discovered a world that is fascinating and rich and detailed and really helps us in our current context. So all of that was just a preface to my answer to your question. Sorry for droning on so long here and just interrupt me if you want to redirect this, but oh, that's good. Um, from that experience, I would step back and just reflect having thought about this and written the book on it, that I just feel that there's great wisdom to be had. I mean, that would be the main reason. The main benefit is just, we can learn a lot. Um, when we come to Christ, we don't merely come to him as an individual with a private relationship with him. But when we become a Christian, we become a member of the body of Christ, the church. And the church extends throughout space, but also throughout time. And so we have brothers and sisters in the Lord who precede us in generations gone by. And because they have fought different battles and lived in different times, I think they can often help us see our blind spots. They can help teach us. They'll have fought battles that we don't fight, and therefore they will have had to get to levels of precision and clarity and thinking about the things they fought battles over that we can benefit from their wisdom. Like for the early church, the Trinity, for example, or the deity of Christ, those things were hammered out very carefully. And it would be, I think, very foolish to not listen to the contributions that these brothers and sisters in Christ can make to us. So the, the, the big reason would be there's a lot of benefits. There's a lot of wisdom we can gain um, and lots of specifics for how that plays out that I'm sure we'll get into here. I, I mean, I think I, I was talking to Ross Inman today about something similar. We were talking about divine simplicity and just the idea that a lot of people who want to push back against it, seem to be divorced from the history of Christian thought and all of the riches that are there uh, that have worked out the ways of understanding uh, this doctrine and, and working against the potential objections that it seems like some people look at an objection and say, well, no one must have ever answered this. Well, if you go back and read uh, some of the greats in church history, you find that those answers are hidden there and they've dealt with them. Um, I know you've got a chapter on your book in, in this very book on simplicity. So uh, along with several other chapters that I found, I think all the chapters are really interesting and it's a really cool mix of what you're doing in there. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And, and, and just a quick comment on your point there. I think you're right on about simplicity being, you know, some of the, the most influential criticisms of divine simplicity, which is the doctrine that God is without parts. Um, are seem to me to at times show actually an ignorance of the historical discussion and the reasons why. And some in some cases you have a situation where um, there's a, a completely different approach to that doctrine today than what most Christians have had all throughout church history. And it's one thing if we say, hey, we need to go a different direction than others have gone. That's sometimes necessary. Yeah. But if people are going a different direction than how most Christians throughout space and time have gone in approaching this doctrine without even being aware that they're doing that, that's the kind of trouble we can get into, I think, when we uh, ignore the historical backlog 
for some of these doctrines. It's like we're trying to reinvent the wheel and we just, you know, we miss out on some of the things that could help us approach it. Maybe we'll get into more of the specific doctrines and um, in a bit later, but I, I want to go back to this piece about identity. So most of our um, listeners are evangelicals and most of them are Baptists. So how do we think about retrieval as Baptists? I think when most people, maybe not most people, when a lot of people think about it, they think, okay, if I'm going to go back and start digging through church history, it's kind of a, I've got to take it all or I don't get to take any. So how do we go about this without losing our, our, our identity as a Baptist or maybe just even as a Protestant? Okay, well, that, that question is really important to me as well, because um, one of the things I've tried to be really careful about in the book and throughout my thinking on this topic is the danger that often seems to get us into trouble when we're dealing with academic topics, and that's reacting from one error to the opposite extreme. You know, So if we say that uh, as evangelicals, we haven't done as well at appropriating church history and then we end up swinging the pendulum all the way to the other side where we um, mm-hmm. perhaps overstate the importance of church history or something like that. I want to be so careful about that to try to get the nuances right here. So I've been wrestling with this because the whole idea of the book is that we can be deep in history as Protestants, that we don't need to step outside a Protestant uh, and even a specifically evangelical Protestant framework in order to be historically rooted. And um, what has helped me the most in thinking about that has been going to the reformers themselves, the first Protestants, as well as some of the key voices in second and third generation Protestant traditions. And what I have discovered is actually the reformers themselves had a very inclusive posture toward church history Calvin is a great example. He, he was very much grounded in the church fathers, and he didn't regard it as a compromise to argue from both scripture and from the church fathers. Uh, the Roman Catholic opponents in the Counter-Reformation were saying they were charging the reformers with the charge of novelty. You guys are new. You know We're old and you're new. And Calvin's response to that was to say, no, we're old. You're new. Um, the things we're opposing are accretions that have crept in progressively throughout the medieval era, mostly. Um, And whereas on many of the important points of difference between Protestant and Catholic, Calvin argued extensively that the church fathers, as well as the New Testament, was on the Protestant side. And they, at times, they even cast their whole effort of Protestant reform going back to the purity of the early church. They were, they were very clear to distinguish their efforts from those of the more radical Anabaptists to say, we're trying to reform the church. We're not trying to recreate the church from thin air. We're trying to go back. And at one point, Calvin says, all we're trying to do is go back to the purity of the fourth century. Now, there's lots of nuances here that we might need to flesh out further. But the main point that I feel that I've gotten from looking, listening to the reformers very carefully, is that um, as a Protestant, uh, we can see ourselves as vitally connected to all of church history. What it means to be Protestant is that we have the scripture over us as our ultimate norming norm, which is a 
huge difference between us and our Catholic friends. Uh, it, but it doesn't mean that our real tradition is only starting with Martin Luther. Um, we can see ourselves as fundamentally rooted in, and, and Calvin quoted people, uh, he quoted Jesus, you know, when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He says, Jesus did not leave off in fulfilling that pro promise. One of the frequent claims the reformers made is that uh, the idea of the preservation of the church, that even in the times of greatest corruption, the Holy Spirit preserved uh, a remnant of regenerate people, mm -hmm. uh, even in those times. So I think the reformers can help us today with understanding what it means to be Protestant, because I think a lot of contemporary Protestants actually have a more restrictive view of what it means to be a Protestant than the original Protestants and how they understood and depicted and cast their efforts. Yeah, that's good. And I'm looking at your book right now, and I guess the outline is, I like it a lot. So you kind of, it seems like you explain what is theological retrieval, can evangelicals do it, why should they do it, benefits and perils, and then you have these case studies that we've mentioned. And I, I find it so fascinating that you have like a chapter on divine simplicity, and then you have a chapter on uh, pastoral balance. Um, and why don't you walk us through, I don't know which one I, I, I'm most interested in. Um, you've got four of them here. Maybe you can, I mean, well, actually this Gregory the Great on pastoral balance. I'm really curious how you go about theologically retrieving his thoughts. What does that look like in action? I know I could just tell people, go get the book and read it. Um, but if you could give a, a, I guess, a summary of how you're going about doing this, some of the nuances, so that people can understand this is how I practically do it myself in my own, my own life. Okay, well, um, to pick up on a point that we mentioned a little bit earlier, in my mind, theological retrieval and, and how it's done is not a strict or tightly defined method. It's more of a general posture or set of instincts for doing theology. So to be honest with you, um, doing theological retrieval with someone like Gregory, there's not really a, um, a self-conscious method I'm following so much as you know, obviously, we want to use good scholarly tools in terms of uh, historical work and reading Gregory in context and so forth. And then there's a creative element of the retrieval part of applying that to today's needs. But honestly, for me, a lot of times it just is as simple as picking up a copy of the book of pastoral rule and a good translation and diving in and just seeing what happens, <laughs> you know, um, and, and, and the reason Gregory came up for me is because he's one of a couple of figures, particularly figures in the late patristic or early medieval time period, which I would argue, so this is like the, that is to say, the end of the time of the church fathers and the beginning of the uh, medieval era. So we're thinking, you know, the sixth century and the seventh century, times like that. I highlight a couple of people in there because I actually think that's one of the most neglected times of all church history. I bet a lot of Christians, and I don't mean this as a judgment, this is how I would have been before I got into this stuff, don't really know anything about that time of history because it's after the, mm -hmm. the church councils, the at least most of the, the truly ecumenical councils, but it's really before you get to like Anselm or Thomas Aquinas and people like that. But um, Gregory is one who lives at that time. So he is one of a couple people that I suggest were hugely influential for prior generations of Christians 
but have somehow sort of dropped off in their influence. And um, Gregory was greatly admired by the reformers. Calvin called him the last good pope. So, um, you know, he he was respected <laughs> by them. Um, and he, by all accounts, I think he was a very capable leader. I mean, he got a lot done in, 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 during the during his leadership. Um, but I think his book, The Book of Pastoral Rule, I've just experienced it to have a lot of wisdom. I, you mentioned pastoral balance. That's a real theme that I detect in that book. His whole thing is he's wrestling with, on the one hand, he wants to focus on what he, in his context, called the contemplative life. That is his inner life of prayer and devotion to God. And on the other hand, he's got the active life, which is his responsibilities and, as a as a leader and, you know, caring for people and um, uh, administrative labors and so forth. And his whole thing is he's trying to balance those. And he, he recognized, and I actually think that's a perennial difficulty for pastors. Um, and there's so much wisdom we can gain from him. Uh, and I think in terms of the literature of what we call pastoral theology, in the Protestant tradition, we think of people like Richard Baxter and Charles Spurgeon and others who've contributed to that. I think there's some unique emphases that Gregory has. Some of his psychological insights into the human heart and how to motivate people and how to deal with difficult people and so forth. It's very kind of shrewd mm -hmm. and wise. And this is what I've found generally is that the patristic and medieval eras, they have particular things to add that we wouldn't have gotten just from reading in the last 500 years. So Gregory is someone I, I really encourage pastors to read. I think there's a lot of wisdom he has to teach us. I don't have a PhD and all they see in front of them is, you know, a sea of, of 2000 years of church history and they don't really know where to start. It all kind of maybe seems overwhelming. I know you mentioned a minute ago that sometimes it's just as simple as, you know, just opening up a book and, and starting to read, but they don't know where to go. They don't know, you know, maybe what are some good topics to start with or um, how to actually go about this as a pastor or maybe even as a layperson, you know, um, can you talk them through um, what are some, um, what's the, what, what mindset should they have? I mean, I, I don't think this is something to be scared of. I think this is something to be excited about. So can you just maybe offer some mm -hmm. encouragement there? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Cause this is something that I'm sensitive to because I do realize that some people, um, they get very intimidated by these older texts that they think they won't be able to understand. And that do have some real foreign feel to them at times. Um, and one thing I'll say about my book is it is kind of a, an academic or, or quasi-academic book. So I, I think some people have picked it up expecting it to be more popular level. So I, I do want to kind of warn people about that, that this is getting into some of the more technical aspects of how to be a Protestant and think about Protestant identity and so forth. Um, but I think it's written with a sensitivity to pastors or an interested lay Christians too. So I think if someone's interested in the topic, they can uh, get into it. But um, I would just want to encourage people that uh, some of the texts that we find in church history are actually, I would say, generally speaking, easier to read than contemporary theology books. Um, some of them were written for the sake of catechesis, which means just formal teaching. So like to prepare Christians to be baptized and that kind of thing. And so they're, they're designed to be more systematic and compact. Um, 
and you know even even like Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, it's not really written for experts. It's written for broader educational purposes. Um, and some of these books are brief, you know. So, for example, if someone wanted to pick up Athanasius's book on the Incarnation of the Word, there's a great edition of that in the Popular Patristics series that Saint Vladimir's Seminary Press puts out, and it has a great foreword by C.S. Lewis called "On the Reading of Old Books." And if anyone wants to learn more about this topic, the best thing to do probably is read that little essay by C.S. Lewis. It's so helpful and eloquent. And then Athanasius's book is brief. It could be read in one afternoon, maybe an hour or two. Um, and it's not highly technical, but it's very interesting. And it's all about the incarnation of Jesus and his work of atonement. And it's a great entry point. Another great book that I like to encourage people with is St. Augustine's Confessions, which I think people will experience as not overly dry or heady. I think people will experience the whole book is a prayer. It's aflame with love for God and devotion. I think people will experience that book as um, easy to relate to at a heart level. It's longer and takes some work to get through. But I think, I really think Christians mm -hmm. will, many Christians will just love it. They'll just, they won't be a burden to, to, to read in, in it. So I, I would just encourage Christians not to be too intimidated because um, sometimes these older books are a little bit more honest and a little bit easier to get into than contemporary books. And while some aspects of this topic are a little more on the academic side, I think lay Christians can and should be reading older texts for many of the reasons that C.S. Lewis mentions in that article. Um, there's real benefit, and sometimes it's an easier way to get into theology than reading a modern book, which will have lots of longer words, lots of isms, and maybe isn't written in the, in, in the fires <laughs> of controversy, whereas some of these books are. Like one of the books I mentioned a lot in my book is Boethius's On the Consolation of Philosophy. Well, he wrote that while awaiting his execution, drawn up from the deepest anxieties of life. And wow. I think people will feel that sense of urgency and honesty as they get into it. That's good stuff. Um, you know, as I think about this topic, I, I know we maybe could have addressed this earlier, but I, I'm just thinking about so many evangelicals, at least I know you mentioned your experience, my experience. It seems like a lot of us just aren't known for drawing from church history, or we don't even realize a lot of church history exists. And I'm, and I know you're not like a sociologist or something, but in your opinion, why do you think so many um, are not known for it? Is it just because they don't have the exposure to it? Is it because they're afraid of losing their Protestant identity, like we mentioned? Um, what What are the driving forces typically for this? Well, two things that come to my mind, and I'm sure there may be other factors as well. Um, one is, I do think that evangelicalism is often characterized by a kind of pragmatism, a kind of more immediate what will work philosophy in terms of how we approach ministry at times, for example. Obviously, that's a generalization. That's not necessarily true of all evangelicals or of evangelicals in every way. But I do worry about that at times. I think sometimes we are so, with the best of intentions, eager to sort of grow and reach people that um, anything that isn't 
perceived to be conducive to that end can get put on the back burner. And historical depth doesn't always seem to have an immediate sort of cash value for doing doing ministry in church, even though I would argue I do think it has a huge benefit. But I, I think maybe that pragmatism may be a factor of uh, we just want the newest, slickest thing and um, the kind of depth and richness that uh, is involved with retrieval um, takes more time and it's uh, maybe out of alignment with that more pragmatic ethos at times. That may be a factor. But I also think part of it is just sometimes the theology that Protestants have about church history. And although I, I said earlier what I said about Calvin and Luther and the more careful Protestant mentality, um, it is also the case that, especially in more recent times, in the book I talk about B.B. Warfield is maybe one example of someone who, for all his many uh, benefits uh, that we can get from him, maybe isn't the most helpful on some of these questions, I do think a lot of more recent Protestants have had a kind of, um, well, you know, to mention one formal view, there's the idea of the fall of the church that has influenced many Protestant views of church history. So this is the idea that at some point early on in church history, often at the conversion of Constantine in the fourth century, uh, when the church and the state became intertwined, or sometimes as early as the second century when you have the rise of bishops, um, the idea that the church fell and it um, either didn't sort of come back to vitality until Luther or even with Luther it didn't. And it's only in separatist strains that it sort of comes back to vitality. That's a common view. Um, I think it's influenced by the broader historical caricature of the medieval era as the time as the so-called dark ages um which was the enlightenment view and so i think there's this broader historical perception that especially affects the church at times that can influence our thinking and so in the book i argue against the fall of the church paradigm and i argue that that's not the the best representation of a careful and thoughtful protestant mentality and i I draw not just from Luther and Calvin, but a lot from Francis Turretin, who was a later uh, Reformed theologian. He he faced this question very thoughtfully. His is the best treatment of these things that I've found among Protestants. And he gives a very nuanced and careful response to the charge of novelty. And he's saying, as Luther said, that the true church was preserved in every generation. He gives about four different reasons for why we shouldn't say that the church fell. And I think uh, I'm really persuaded that He's got a lot of good reasons for opposing that view, and I think I think we should do the same. Yeah, that's that's a really helpful word on how we should think about the church and um, and church history in general. Before we let you go, um, I, you've already mentioned several uh, resources from Gregory the Great, Athanasius, and then the C.S. Lewis essay. But are there any other um, resources or books that you would like to recommend for? Um, the listeners that maybe want to get more involved in retrieval, whether that be a, a modern day uh, book like the one that you've written that we've been discussing or some other um, primary resources that you think would be um, a good entry point. Okay. Um, well, a couple of books, contemporary books that are kind of in this vein of, of encouraging Protestants to be uh, thinking more carefully about church history. You know, there is the, the, 
uh, organization that started called the Center for Baptist Renewal. I'd really recommend that uh, organization for people to check it out if they're interested, especially if they're in a Baptist context. I think they'll find a lot of helpful resources and encouragement on this topic. Um, a number of theologians a few years ago put together the Reforming Catholic Confession. People might have an interest in Googling that. I know Kevin Van Hooser was very involved in that as well as others and and benefiting from, from learning about that and, and reading it uh, and potentially being involved. Um, there's a couple books that have, I found really helpful. One is by Michael Allen and Scott Swain called Reformed Catholicity, and they're coming particularly from a Reformed tradition and arguing for um, lowercase c Catholicity, just meaning um, the universality of the church. And so being Reformed, but also being Catholic in that sense. Sometimes that word Catholic really trips people up because they think Roman Catholic with an uppercase C. And I've even heard people who say you shouldn't use it with a lowercase C because it's deceptive. And uh, my response to that is, uh, well, it's in the Apostles' <laughs> Creed and it's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So I think we can rehabilitate our vocabulary rather than uh, abandon that term. Um the fact that it's so deceptive for us might be a problem with us mm -hmm. and not a problem with the terminology. But um, their book is very helpful on these topics as well. Uh, there's another book called Theology as Retrieval. But that, that one, both that and the Swain book came out, of, I think, in 2015. That The Swain and Allen book is a Baker book. This is IVP, and it's uh, written by Bushart and Eilers, Kent Eilers and David Bushart. That's a really helpful book on this topic too. Those are more academic books, so people should be aware of that. Um, and then in terms of church history, uh, you know, a couple just example uh, recommendations or examples. I mentioned Augustine's Confessions. Uh, I mentioned Athanasius. Um, I mentioned Gregory the Great. Boethius's book, The Consolation of Philosophy, a little tougher to get into, but it's fascinating. It deals with the topic of divine foreknowledge and human free will, a really influential book over the medieval church. And then one other is... Um, Irenaeus, who was one of the earlier church fathers, uh, he has a longer book called Against Heresies, which is very interesting. But he also has a shorter book that's more of work of catechesis. And I'm just blanking on exactly what the title is. It's something like a manual for church instruction or something like that. I can't believe I'm, I'm, uh, I told you my, my brain is a little fatigued right now, but, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll have to look that up and, and, People can clarify that, but it's, there's an edition of that also in the popular patristic series, and it's very brief and readable. Again, it was written for catechesis, um, okay. so super helpful, great starting point for people if they're just curious to learn. You know, what did Irenaeus way back in the second century have to say about these yeah. things? So, for those who are interested in following your work, I know you've got a couple more books coming out. Um, I know you have a Twitter. Uh, I think you have a website. Are are there other places, or are those the places they should go if they want to follow what yeah, you're doing? That's, those are two great, yeah, those are two great places. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter, just my first and last name, Gavin Ortland, And then um, my website is actually just gavinortland.com. Ortland is spelled O-R-T-L-U-N-D. And people can subscribe there or follow me on Twitter. And it's a great way. To, I love connecting with people like that. So be happy to, uh, to connect with people in that way. Fantastic. Well, I, I'm really thankful you took the time out of your day to talk with us about this topic. Uh, I, I'm really passionate about it. I think it's, it's great, and I hope it infects all sorts of other 
uh, disciplines and begins to grow more uh, historical use and research uh, for the good of the church. So um, I highly recommend this book. I highly recommend your other work. I'm looking forward to seeing your new books that are coming out, especially I think you've got one on Augustine and creation. I think that's fascinating. Uh, I want to read. So pretty much anything you're putting out, I'm going to read it. So I'll, I'll help Thank support you, you guys. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, for our listeners who've been listening, um, you've been listening to the Only Analytic Baptist Confessional Podcast, and we uh, look forward to talking to you guys soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.